Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And this week, The Economist asks, is progressive politics in decline? Former British Shadow Chancellor Ed Balls will be joining me to discuss the rise of populism from Brexit. The country voted to leave the European Union, and it is the duty of the government and parliament to make sure we do just that. To Jeremy Corbyn. I want our party to be the inclusive, open, welcoming place for everybody. And beyond. You have to make the argument that we have change which can deliver. If it's the status quo versus change in the current environment, the status quo loses. New Labour was the dominant political force in Britain for 13 years, from 1997 to 2010. Since then, it's lost elections and moved decisively to the left. It might be part of a broader trend. Voters seem to be losing some faith in moderate politics or being led by technical experts. So where does that leave progressive politics today? That's the question I'm going to put to the former Shadow Chancellor, Ed Balls. In his new memoir, Speaking Out, he charts the highs and lows of a career on the centre-left. And he pulls no punches about the state of the Labour Party today, framing its leader Jeremy Corbyn's politics as a leftist utopian fantasy. But what can provide the solutions to help voters believe in more centrist politics again and revive the progressive cause? Ed Balls, you describe your own journey to power on the centre-left and then brutally out of it again. What has gone so wrong with progressive politics that voters seem to be losing faith in it? I think in America and in Europe, it's happening on both the left and the right. You could equally say the same thing about Marie Le Pen or Donald Trump. What you have is people who move to the extreme, who say the mainstream is sort of corrupt and out for itself. And I think it becomes very simple and populist. We can make the world better if only we built a wall and stopped the immigrants, if only we stopped there being bankers, if only we rejected the neoliberal conspiracy. Of course, the world's more complicated than that. And voters know that simply blaming every problem on one group isn't right. But Amongst your own supporters, it can get you a lot of cheers, and that's definitely worked to the advantage of Jeremy Corbyn and Donald Trump. A lot of your career has been founded on the idea that good economics will lead to good politics. It's something that you say a number of times in the book. But some would say that economics really is is more often the thing that that brings down an established political order. You worked with with Gordon Brown when he was leader, and I think it would be fair to say that the financial crisis helped see him off. That's true. But I think if you're looking to explain what's happened with Trump or Corbyn or Le Pen, if you are looking to understand why mainstream politics at the moment in so many countries is unpopular, you have to go to what happened with the economics and the way in which politics failed to see what was happening. So the reality was we thought the biggest risk 
in the global economy would come from governments making inflationary mistakes. And we missed this huge brewing crisis, which was happening in the private sector, in the financial sector. And politicians who'd promised stability in the economy then were found wanting because people thought, well, you said it would be okay, and now we've got this big financial crisis. Similarly, we said to people that technology and globalisation and the digitalization of the world economy would make people better off. We said that globalisation would be about trade and capital. We all failed to see the way in which actually people would move. Those are three big economic trends which politics failed to see. But just to unpack that a bit, when candour about blame for something as big as the financial crisis tends to come belatedly, and maybe it comes a few years on in books like yours, and yet you do still seem to struggle with the idea of blame or blame for macroeconomic failures by the British government, of which you were a part. Do you feel you've done enough soul-searching on that? Well, I think if you look after we came into government in 1997 at the decision to make the Bank of England independent and not to join the single currency, those were two of the biggest macroeconomic successes of British politics in the post-war era. There was but there the- you go on the successes and it's the failures that interest people. Well, I think it's important both to celebrate your successes and to admit and understand your failures. And so the point I was making Do was... Do some admitting. Even though we had low inflation, stability low national debt, an economy which was growing in a steady way, we failed to see a financial crisis which was then massively destabilising to British economics and politics and in America, France and Germany. That was a huge error. It was an error of understanding and comprehension across the global system. I think history will judge the Gordon Brown, Alistair Darling response as to be a big macroeconomic success because unlike the 1930s, we prevented a depression. But the economic and political ramifications of that financial crisis which we missed are huge and will continue to reverberate for years. But the charge is really that spending was too high in the run-up to the crisis, that warning signs were missed, and to cite the line that was then thrown at you by the Conservatives, you failed to mend the roof while the sun was shining, so you, you got wet. Well, that has always been the line that the Conservatives have thrown at me. And I have the advantage now I can stand back and reflect on what I learn and what I got right and what I got wrong. And one of But the I th- haven't heard you do it. Well, what did you get wrong? Well, I've just told you that we missed seeing a global financial crisis brewing in banks around the world. But I've never said anything in any interview where I knew the economics was wrong and decided to say it anyway because it was convenient. And I'm not going to start now. So the idea that Labour spending pre-2007 was excessive is untrue. The idea that it contributed to the financial crisis is absurd. I think the charge is that you would have had more, so to speak, banked up to deal with it. I mean, that must be true. That is the Tory charge, and it's a complete nonsense. What I don't understand is why it's not true, because if you had saved more, you would have had a bit of something put aside in sort of household spending terms. Economies, as you know, are rather more complex than household spending terms. If you're in opposition, you have to think in the household way, but that isn't actually how economies work. We went into the financial crisis with a lower level of national debt than we inherited, lower than America, lower than France, lower than Germany. What happened then was a massive collapse in activity and a huge fall in tax revenues. I don't want to say things which are convenient politically for the Conservatives. They're not true. And what's the point of that?
You sound like you're back in your old professional mode. So <laughs> on both sides of the Atlantic and indeed across parts of continental Europe as well, we seem to be seeing voters rejecting the technocratic, expert-driven approach to politics, getting interested in something else, whether it's Donald Trump in America, whether it is deriding the experts on Brexit in Britain. What do you think is going on? Well, there's no doubt that mainstream, centrist technocratic politics on both sides of the Atlantic failed. People are angry. People want change. But the question is, what kind of change are we talking about? And populism from left and right is a lurching, simplistic, let's just blame everybody else, go for a simplistic solution, normally undefined in policy terms, because the moment you define it, it falls apart. Frankly, that's how Donald Trump has done his whole campaign. He's been quite successful up to now. Although I think in the final analysis, when people think, could he actually make decisions? Has he actually got any policies? Does it really make sense? I think he's going to struggle. Same kind of argument was made about Brexit, was it not? People will realise at the last moment the risk is too great. And they still took the risk. No, that is absolutely right. And there's a really important lesson in that, which Hillary needs to learn and Labour needs to learn. It was a conversation George Osborne and I had at the beginning of the referendum campaign when we both appeared on a platform explaining why we were voting for in. We agreed that the Remain campaign could not simply be a defence of the status quo. If you say to people, it's not bad, or this is as good as it gets, and to change will be bad and risky and dangerous, I'm afraid lots of people think, well, you know, you say that's bad and risky and dangerous, but it doesn't feel that great to me at the moment. Why don't I take a risk? And David Cameron ended up disastrously in a position where having gone out and done his renegotiation, not come back with too much. He came back and said, this is it. I've succeeded. I've reset the relationship. Vote for the status quo because change is dangerous. You have to make the argument that we have change which can deliver. If it's the status quo versus change in the current environment, the status quo loses. I'm very intrigued there that you were having a cosy conversation with George Osborne, the then Conservative Chancellor, about strategy on the EU referendum, given that you knocked seven bells out of each other. Particularly, I think you had a quite competitive relationship with George Osborne as Chancellor. Isn't it now clear the Chancellor totally failed to get a better deal for the taxpayer? He didn't reduce Britain's backdated bill by a single penny. What I'm wondering is whether both sides of the divide, the centre-left and the centre-right, have misjudged things, that your real enemies possibly lie to the far-left and further-right. And yet such a lot of intensity has gone into fighting each other. George Osborne now doing some sort of push or institute on something like the Northern Powerhouse, his big idea of devolving power. And I think that was something that you also got interested in when you were in government. Would you work with someone like George Osborne on a project like the Northern Powerhouse? We had some differences of view about how George was very exercised about having directly elected mayors, which I think works very well in London and may work in Manchester and was very unlikely to work well in Yorkshire or the North East. But put that aside, and of course, in politics, the thing which divides you often See, you're gets having ex- a feud already. No, 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 no. The thing which divides you often gets accentuated. But underneath that, devolving more power and decision-making to localities to plan a business-orientated and jobs-orientated economic plan for their area, including transport and skills... In some ways, I wanted him to go further on those things. And if I could help him and he could help me to make that argument to the country, of course I'd do it. I'll put you in touch. Thank you.
So dancing on thin ice, often a theme in political careers, which you've then taken, at least the dancing part, into your life today. And we have recently seen you and Strictly Come Dancing. What motivates a serious politician who many people think should be sitting at home reading their tomes on the Northern Powerhouse or macroeconomics after the crash to think, oh, I must get working on my pas double? <laughs> I was a serious politician for 20 years, but then I lost my seat. I'm not a politician now, I'm out. I've got some time. I'm spending some time at Harvard. But actually, when you ask to go on the biggest television programme in Britain, maybe in the world, really popular with our family, get fit, learn to dance, have a good time. Uh, it's a massive challenge. I think at the moment, politics is seen in quite a low light in our country. And if I can help to prove to people that politicians are real people, that would be a quite a good thing to do. One review of your book said rather shrewdly that it was a case of same show, different channel, i.e. the same things that drive politicians to get up and perform and say, this is really what you've got to do to run your country or run the economy better, then get channeled into, I want to win, I want to at least put up a great performance in front of the nation. Are you benign exhibitionists? I think that piece must have been written before people actually saw me on the show, where it was clear that I'm a novice that I'm not going to win, that it's going to be really hard for me. If I was attempting to show, like in politics, that in this programme I'm a winner and I can succeed and this is my comeback process, I think I'd be a bit foolish, really, because I think this is unlikely to be that successful, unfortunately. But some people think it is an example of what we discussed on a show about a week ago with Mark Thompson from the New York Times as authenticism. I'm close to the viewers, the voters, the people. I do the things that they like to watch. I'm not going to go eight-part series on the future of Western economies. I'm going to put my time into something entertaining. Some people think that is the sign of someone who wants a comeback. In my book, there's a whole chapter on image and how important image is and how distorted it can be in politics. And I think what I say about authenticity is that, of course, being the real you and people saying, unlike other politicians, he really says it how it is. That's a good thing, but it's not in and of itself enough at all. There are politicians, I think Jeremy Corbyn is one, who, at least early on, gets a reputation for authenticity. But what people want to know is, can they lead? Have they got the policies which will change the country? Are they professional and have they got a grip in difficult times? Being authentically not that good may be authentic, but it doesn't win your elections. We are a social movement and we will only win the next general election because we are that movement of people all around the country who want to see a different world and do things very differently. Let's talk about the Labour Party as it is now. I mean, one reason it's so hard for a moderate person to get back into politics if they've been on the inside and are now out is that the party has moved decisively to the left and that there is a a machine under Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor, which seems now to have a much stronger grip from the far left on the party. Isn't that one of the reasons why people like you 
decide that exitism might be the best strategy? Well, I didn't decide to exit. I exited because I lost my constituency because of the voters. And I think the thing that the Labour Party has got to remember is in the end, if it wants to be in government, is the voters who are going to decide, not the members of the party. There's no doubt that we've had lots more members over the last couple of years. And that's a good thing if it delivers leaders who then win the trust of voters. But I'm afraid at the moment I feel that the current leadership thinks that being cheered by the members is sufficient. And that is the road to opposition and permanent opposition if your members and your voters are disconnected as they clearly are for the current Labour Party. That's why in the leadership election going on at the moment I voted for Owen Smith because I'm voting for somebody who wants to try to get back in touch with voters and think that winning elections is important. There really are two parties, aren't there? There is the continuity Labour, if you like, still largely represented at Parliament. And then there is Jeremy Corbyn, Labour supporters in the country, a movement, as he sees it, a different kind of of politics. A lot of countries have sort of dealt with this by having a formal split. I'm thinking of Germany in the Bad Goldesberg Conference, which splits off the communists from the social democrats. Isn't that what needs to happen in British politics? And shouldn't people like you be more active in it? Well, we have a first-past-the-post system in terms of the way we vote. We have two established parties which have history and tradition and values, which go back for for in Labour's case, 100 years, and the Conservatives more than that. This is the first time the hard left has ever been in control of the leadership of the party. But I don't think that's a time to walk away and give up. I think the lesson of political parties from other countries is that that's a very, very difficult thing to do. And that what you've got to do is stay in and, and fight to make sure that the party, which I've been part of for all my adult life, continues to be a, a mainstream party of government. And I'm not for giving up. If the party doesn't split and it sounds like you don't think that's a good idea. What's the way out of this? There is a Labour leadership election happening now that will be decided in a few weeks. If Jeremy Corbyn is elected as the leader again, which people are expecting, this then causes a big problem in Parliament because he won't have the support of the majority of um, Labour MPs, the large majority of Labour MPs. The question then is, how long is it till the general election? Is it three and a half years? Is it going to happen sooner? I think it's quite possible still that Theresa May will have an early election. And this will be a very big test for Jeremy Corbyn and that wing of the party. They're in control of the party. Can they take their message to the country and win? Now, all the indications at the moment, they can't. But they may have to try. That will be an uncomfortable election. But after that, then the issue will then arise again as to whether this is really a sensible direction for the Labour Party to keep taking. John McDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor, certainly does that job that you know so well in a very different way. What is it you think that he is trying to bring out of this role? The way John McDonnell has done this in the last year goes to the heart of Labour's problem, which is that rather than thinking his main task is to persuade a sceptical electorate in the country that he can be trusted on the economy while delivering the change people want to see. He's instead seemed to me to spend almost all his energy in and outside Parliament trying to strengthen the position of the hard left leadership Corbyn faction against MPs or opponents within the Labour Party. Now, it's fine to win an internal argument if that's what you think the purpose of politics is. But if the purpose of politics is to win the trust of the country, well, John's not really been doing much on that. The job of Shella Chancellor has got to be about the country, not the party, and that's his task now.
It's always risky to ask authors what the best lessons of their own books are, but in your case, I'm, I'm going to risk it. What, what do you think that you learned in your time in politics that would give us insight into the ruffle trade, as someone once called it? Well, there are lots of lessons for my 27-year-old self in the book, but here's two that I would highlight. One is the book is partly about my struggle with a stammer. And I think I thought as a politician ever to talk about a flaw or a vulnerability would be weakening. And when I finally did it, I found it was strengthening to me as a performer and also as a politician. So being open about things which you find hard is a good thing. And I think the second lesson is it's very easy in politics to think that ambition and the next job is the most important thing. And there's a danger that you, if you don't get to that biggest job, you end up thinking that you've wasted your time. Whereas, in fact, we can all do great things in politics, whichever job we're in. And to celebrate and enjoy the things that you achieve while learning mistakes along the way and enjoying the days you have, that's more important than being consumed by an ambition for the future, which ends up being pretty defeating for politicians and uh, for human beings. Ed Balls, thank you very much. And now that Ed says he's given up politics for good, a member of our production team suggests that with his new dancing expertise, there might nonetheless still be a job waiting for him at the Department of Twerk and Pensions. Oh yes. If you have any thoughts on that conversation, do let me know. We're on Twitter at Economist Radio. You can also get us via email, radio at economist.com. We'd love to hear from you. And coming up, we're bringing you a special programme dedicated to a recent report on the most and least livable cities in the world. That'll be out soon, and we'd like to hear from you about your city, whether you love it or hate it, and why. In London, this is The Economist. 